Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. If, well, that's, but he was, uh, we'll remember him on Veterans Day. Yes. Well, but he's passed on already, though, but uh, same thing. Um, you know, if anybody else, uh, I don't know if, um, well, there's not too many people here that would remember years ago uh, when we first started off, there was um, a group of young men that were coming in from uh, Fort Irwin over by Barstow. And one of those young men, uh, um, a guy named uh, Maydals was his last name. He was, I, I think, from back east somewhere, went to Afghanistan with the crew and he was at our church, and um, yeah, he was, he was killed in action. And so we remember him as often as we can. Uh, just got to meet him that one time, didn't really know him at all, uh, didn't know the family, but Ameda uh, uh, was, uh, was his last name. And, and, I, and I'm sure that you've heard of others that have passed on. And so Memorial Day is the day uh, that we take off on a Monday. And, I, and some people make it a three-day weekend, some make it a four-day weekend. And, uh, and we, we kind of give it Somewhat of a, yeah, okay, thank you, for the, thank you for the extra day that I don't have to work. This Memorial Day, though, however, it's just a little bit different. Um, some of you probably heard of the, the shooting in Texas, and uh, the, a lot of kids, 19, 19 people total that were, were killed, assassinated, I would say. And, uh, and we need to lift the family up in prayer as well. And I know that their celebration is not going to be anything like what many of us are going to experience tomorrow or this weekend. And uh, many of them are, are losing, uh, I've lost the, their children and uh, loved ones, cousins, nephews, nieces, aunts, moms. And so it's affected a community, but not only a community, it's affected that state, it's affected our country. And so we, we have to just lift this up and, and uh, trust that still God is on the throne. I mean, there's nothing else that we can actually do. The deed is done. And I know that everyone has got a, a different opinion on the things that should be done, but ultimately we, we need to lift up the Lord, uh, lift up these people to the Lord and, and recognize that in spite of it all, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, if you know that the, the cruel, cruel cross that we just sung about, um, that Jesus Christ endured for us, was along God's purposes and God's plan, and God sovereignly saw to it that His Son was smitten. And, and, and in a cruel way. And, and we, have to, we have to realize and know that God is still sovereign. Now, I'm not saying that God caused these things to happen for these children and this family. But yet we have to understand and we have to realize and know that God is still in control. And yes, we will mourn. Yes, it'll be difficult. Yes, we're going to struggle through this. I mean, those of us in San Bernardino, we, the school right down the street happened to us. Uh, downtown, uh, not downtown, but... Um, the, the uh, what was it, the Christmas party that the terrorists hit there as well, you know. So, you know, it's funny about that. Not funny, but it was interesting the way it happened. We were at a funeral in Texas. My wife and I, her sister had passed away. And when we got to the funeral place, they were telling us about what happened in San Bernardino. Was, what happened? You know, we're, we're traveling. We don't, we're not listening to the news. And, and we were there when that happened here, um, the IRC. Anyways... It's, it's no stranger to us. To some of us, it's a little bit closer. And uh, so we still, we still trust that God is in control. So if you would stand with me, I'd like to pray for the families, uh, all the families, those that, uh, from Texas, those around the, the United States that have lost loved ones, uh, to the wars that we have had in the past. And Lord, you know that when this was initiated on, on this day, it was always in remembrance of the things that took place. And in the same manner, Lord, we remember those heroes, those people, those men, women that had gone into the war knowing that they were giving their lives and they were sacrificing all that they had. Some of them very willingly and others by accident or whatever the case may be. But it is established for us, a country, 
that gives us rights and liberties in the pursuit of happiness. And we thank you, Father, for the, the many families that, um, that, that are experiencing uh, with us this joy of, of remembrance, but also the pain that, that they are going through, Lord, even now and the struggle that they go through. We pray for each family, each child, each person that has been affected, every mother, every father, grandparents, and we lift them up to you. Uh, we pray for our, our very special uh, son, Shirley's grandson, that, that is also right now in, in harm's way. And we lift him up to you. We pray that you protect him and guard him and keep him. And I thank you, God, that you've done so, so far. And Lord, we pray for the, the families of Texas and the whole community and everyone that was affected by this cruel and vicious act. And we know, Father, that it's sin. It's you that has been taken out of the schools. It's you that has been taken out of the homes. It's the father that has been taken out of many homes that hasn't given direction to a lot of what's going on today. And it's our society and our culture. And we, we blame the weapons and we blame the, the schools. We blame the government. We blame the police department. We're blaming everyone else. But Father, the fact of the matter is that we live in a wicked and deprived generation. And this right now, this message today is probably the most important message that the world needs to hear. And I know that throughout this whole land, people are proclaiming Jesus lifted high as the only answer. I know that he is the one that everyone is focusing on because he is the only hope. And I pray that, Lord, in this church that we can learn that and share that and go forward with that. So this morning, as we remember all those that have fallen, we also remember the crucifixion, Golgotha, the cross. That we remember that, that place, the, the skull those, that, that where Jesus Christ was crucified. But most importantly, the empty tomb. Because we know that he's resurrected. So Father, this morning we pray that you lead us as we go through this portion of the scripture. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. 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 You, you may be seated. Open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to be going through a couple of verses. And actually, we're only going to focus on one section, as I mentioned last week. Because Paul is in prison for this very fact. As we've been studying the book of Philippians, Philippi was a city that Paul preached at, and he, people were converted and got to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And every person that Paul came in contact with, he just didn't leave them there. He followed up with letters, with encouragement. He went back, and he wanted to go back and encourage this church even more. So people came to him, he encouraged them. And so we know right now that Paul is in prison, waiting to be executed. He doesn't know that that's going to happen, but he has a pretty good idea. I'm sure the Holy Spirit's already uh, implanted that in his heart, and it's already has just laid that upon his heart, that this might be it. This is it. And so the... the uh, the fact that what Paul is doing, he's encouraging the churches and he's focusing on the churches and he's focusing on the people that are, that are coming to, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he says, you know, the, the reason that I'm here, and we're, we're going to talk about the gospel message here a couple of times you know, as we go through the book of Philippians. The reason that I'm here is, is because of the gospel. But because of the gospel, it's also helped to advance the gospel. And because of the gospel, that the reason that I'm here, it's helped to advance the gospel. There are people that are taking advantage of that gospel, and they are taking advantage of it to their own glory. 
And Paul is not talking about bad doctrine, evil doctrine. He's not talking about doctrine that is skewed or mixed up and, and trying to add more to it. He's talking about people that have learned the gospel message and are now are making a living out of it or, or trying to uh, sway people to them. And Paul says, and we'll see this later, Paul says, you know, if it's by false pretenses or whatever the case may be, as long as Jesus Christ, the gospel message, is proclaimed. Now, it's interesting because if we look at this verse, he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Father in heaven, we bow before you and we submit ourselves to your word as you lead us through the gospel message that you have implanted in men's heart years ago, prior to Christ. Show us and lead us to this gospel, this gospel message. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And, and so, as I said earlier, if you look at verse 17, or actually going, going back to verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul is in prison, proclaiming the gospel. People are proclaiming the gospel, doing the same thing that he's doing. Other people are thinking, look, if we do this ourselves, then we can get Paul out of the picture. And Paul says, it doesn't matter to me. I'm in a good spot, you know, because the gospel message is being even advanced even more so. And the people that I'm chained to on a daily basis are hearing the gospel. And as I said last week, one of two things happens when you hear the gospel. Either the gospel message, it is offensive, by the way. It is very offensive because the genuine, true gospel calls people to repentance. And when repentance is called out, it is not even a suggestion. Jesus says, repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Peter told the people when they said, what do we do? Peter says, repent. Paul says, repent. John told the Pharisees to repent. Repentance is the key to the gospel. And what happens is when repentance is preached, when the gospel message is proclaimed and repentance is demanded from the person that hears it, one of two things happens. Of course, those that are cut by the Spirit fall on their face and say, what must I do? I I am sorry, Lord. And the other run away, offended. They run away offended. So one of two things are always going to happen because of the gospel message. Now, how do we know that it's the gospel message that we hear? Well, Paul is telling us right here, right off the bat, there's some people that do it out of selfish ambition. There's some people that do it genuinely. And some people, those who do it out of selfish ambitions, ambitions, not distorted doctrine, not changing the gospel itself. It's by salvation, it's by grace, through faith. And also you got to do this and you got to be circumcised and you got to follow the law and you've got to come to this church or you got to be a part of this group. Paul says, you know, let that person be cursed. We went through that in, we went through that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, if anyone comes to you with a different gospel, whether it's an angel or another prophet or a pastor, who, if it's different than the one that Jesus Christ proclaimed, let them be cursed. Cursed to the fullest extent. And so Paul is not talking about a different doctrine, a different gospel. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, the gospel is not God loves you and he has a great plan for your life. 
That's not the gospel. As true as that may be, God does love you. And he has a plan for your life. It may not be the plan that you want, but he does have a plan for your life. The gospel message, and we, we proclaim that and we say that, well, we just preach the gospel. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is not, you know, that we love you and we want you to be a part of our church because this is where you're going to be fed and you're going to be taken care of and all things are going to work out together for good. And as true as that may be, that's not the gospel message. Some people take the gospel and they go out into the communities and feed the hungry and feed the poor and they come back saying, we shared the gospel. As good as that is, and we're commanded to do so to take care of, as we saw last week, of orphans and widows, and, and we should take care of the poor and the, and the weak, but that is not the gospel message. The gospel message, and you can add anything else, it's not the music, it's not any, the gospel message is Jesus Christ died, buried, and resurrected. Now that's just the, that's just the cliff notes, that's just the, the summation of all that the gospel message is. Because when we look at the gospel message, we have to look at it from God's perspective. This is why today's message is called the gospel of God. Because God himself has set this gospel message into existence. He started this way back in the Old Testament. And probably the, the clearest, most uh, pointed portion of scripture is in Isaiah chapter 53. We'll look at that here in just a bit. But the gospel message has always been by faith alone. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that, that Abraham, it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness being made right because of your salvation. You're not right because of what you do. You're right because of what God has done in you. And it was counted to Abraham as righteousness through faith. He hadn't had the law yet. There was no law. The law wasn't until much later. Abraham is the starter, the beginner, the, the, the progenesis of the of, of the. Uh, Hebrew nation, and it was the Hebrew nation that grew, went into Israel, uh, excuse me, Egypt, and they went into Egypt. They were slaves. Moses came out, brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness where God gave the commandments to Moses, to the people. And so for many people, they believe that by following the commandments of God, you receive salvation. God's commandment was this. You bring a perfect sacrifice every year. Every year, you bring a perfect sacrifice to sacrifice or, or to atone for your sin. It wasn't the perfect sacrifice, but it was a pure sacrifice, not perfect. Because if it was, it would have been done so. It would have been all over. And in the New Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there was always this picture of a Messiah. There was always this picture of a Christ. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. This Messiah was going to come and to take care of everyone. They were going to take care of the whole land and, and make things right. And he's, he was going to establish a kingdom that was never going to end. And when Eve took a bite of the apple and gave it to her husband, and you remember in, in Genesis chapter 3, she gave and they both ate, their eyes were open, and they were able to distinguish between good and evil. They hid, God came to them, why have you, eaten? Why have you done this? And they blamed each other, they blamed the serpent. The first thing that God does is he curses the serpent. And he says, you know what? From this point forward, you are going to crawl on your belly. And he gives the very first indication of a Messiah that is to come. You see, he will bruise your heel, but he will crush, but you will, you will, he will crush his head. You will crush his head, but he will bruise your heel. And in essence, you're going to try to kill him. This is what the, the, the scholars had brought out. You know, let's go there to Genesis chapter 3 before I, before I mix that up a little bit more. 
Genesis chapter 3. Thank you. And in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says this, I will put enmity. In other words, there's going to be this this tension between you and the woman. The woman being Israel is the picture of Israel is what the philosophers thought that the Jewish uh, priests and, and theologians had, had believed at that time and between your offspring and her offspring. So there was going to be an offspring. There's going to be a seed, something that was going to come out of this that was going to deliver them because of the sin that was brought into this world. And then he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, and so in this process, in this, in this contract that is to happen in the future, they saw this as Messiah. Something's going to happen. And throughout the, the Old Testament, you see that Messiah is coming. He will establish his kingdom. And the Jewish people, they flocked to that terminology. Yes, he's coming to save Israel. Yes, as a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ resurrected and he's standing at the Mount of Olives and he's right before he is ascended up into heaven 40 days later, Jesus asks them, excuse me, the disciples ask Jesus, are you now? going to establish the kingdom. This kingdom that we've been here, is, is this going to happen now? And Jesus says, he used this Greek term, he says, Nenya. He says, it's none of your business. It's none of your business as to when it's going to happen, but you will receive power and you will become my witnesses. He says, go and share this good news. What's the good news? As a matter of fact, many of them didn't even understand exactly everything that took place. When two men, after the crucifixion and the resurrection that night, they were walking home to a place called Emmaus. Look with me in Luke chapter uh, 24, I believe. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, the day of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that day, that, that first Sunday of the, of the, of the week, the first day of the week, they were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. What things? Well, the crucifixion and, and all the things that took place on how they treated Jesus Christ. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is important. They, Jesus drew near them, his glorified body. Looking at them, they didn't recognize him because their eyes were kept closed. And these men, mind you, just experienced this horrific murder. How they murdered their best friend. And, and, and they saw it all. And then the next day was the Sabbath. They couldn't travel because, well, nobody travels on the Sabbath. They had to wait till the first day of the week. And the first day of the week, as they're getting ready to go, the women come and says, Hey, somebody has taken our Lord's body. He's, he's not there. As a matter of fact, one of them said to us, the gardener said to us that he is risen, that he's no longer there. And he told us to come tell you. And they all ran and the tomb was empty. And so you got to imagine the, just the emotion of, of it all. If you've lost a loved one, you know that your emotions just run wild. Everything going on in your mind. 
And their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I'm sure these guys were just walking like this, you know. I just can't believe it happened, you know. What, 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 who are you? He says, well, what are you talking about? He says in verse 17, he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, probably with their heads down again. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? That's like Jesus, isn't it? Come on, Jesus, don't you know these things that are happening to my life? Jesus looks at you and says, what things? Don't you, don't you realize, don't you see the storm? What storm? Come on, you know. Oh, ye of little faith, as a matter of fact, is what he says. And they stood still, and then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were looking for this Messiah, this conquering king, to redeem Israel from the hands of the Romans. The Romans were cruel. They were cruel to every religion. And Jerusalem especially because they would make fun of these guys. They had this picture, this story of this man bowing down before a crucified donkey. And they would say, behold, and I forget what the man's name was, so Emmaus worshiping his Lord. And they would laugh. This is why when Pilate said, put, put a title on top of him. He's the king of the Jews. Show them what the king of the Jews looked like. And the Pharisees were upset. They said, don't say that he was the king of the Jews. Eh, I wrote what I wrote. Don't worry about it. Just say that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. And they were, they were cruel and they were mean and they were, they were just that type of people. They wanted to be redeemed. They wanted to be pulled out of that, that suffocating system of government that they were under. And they believed that Jesus Christ was going to take them out. As a matter of fact, when Jesus came onto the scene the week before, we call that Palm Sunday. And they said, Hosanna, Hosanna on the highest. God, our God saves. Here he is. He's the guy that's going to overthrow this government right now. He's going to do it. Watch this. Watch. Watch what he's going to do. And they laid down their coats. They laid down their branches. And they celebrated in the streets. And one day, well, come on, Jesus, he's going to do it now. He's going to do it now. And a lot of people believe that this is one of the reasons why Judas, apart from it being prophesied, that Judas was just like, you know what? This isn't the guy. He's not going to deliver us. And so he delivered him over to the Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver. And so when he was brought to trial and he was brought before the people, this guy's no king. He's not the one that is going to redeem us. Crucify him. Get rid of him. God, we got a party to go to. It's Passover and we got to get home and just get rid of him. Was the exact type of attitude. And you think about our culture today. Just get rid of him. I mean, it's no big deal. He's not helping he doesn't do anything. He's not saving us. Just get rid of him. You know what? I got better things to do on Sunday. I got better things to do on Resurrection Sunday. I got better things to do with my time. You know, I'll come when all of a sudden when something happens. And I'll ask God when things are really bad. But you know what? He's not for me. This is not the kind of God I want. In verse 21. 
But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but he, but him they did not see. Now catch this. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, we don't have the Bible study that Jesus Christ went into. We don't have the books that he referred to. We don't have the verses that he pulled out to show this is who I am or this is who the Christ is to be. We don't have that. But whatever he pulled out, I am sure that Isaiah 53 was one of those sections. We'll see here in just a little bit. But, but here's, here's what Jesus did. They drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he, had, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now something here that most people don't catch, and that I want to I make just a, a very, very strong point on this. Here's these guys, distraught, distorted. I mean, they were just discouraged, and they were depressed, and they're walking with their heads down, and, and, and they're man, I can't believe this happened. He was supposed to save us. What are you guys talking about? What, 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 the things that happened today? Well, what happened today? Because haven't you heard? What things? Haven't you heard? They were so discouraged. I, I don't know about you, but I, I think if Jesus is going to show himself to me, that would probably be a good place to show himself, right? Amen? Yeah. How many times are we asking, oh, Father, please, please, I need to see you now. I need to see your work right here, right now. I am so discouraged. I am so downtrodden. I am beaten down from this world. Everything that has happened to me, Lord, is against me. People just hate me. All these things that are just upon me is so oppressive. Lord, show yourself to me. That would be the best time to do it, wouldn't it? But you know when Jesus showed himself? He didn't show himself till after he had a Bible study with these people. He opened up the scriptures. He read the things that were concerning about himself. He showed them who he was. And as a matter of fact, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scriptures? Did, didn't you just sense him? And once they got that, Jesus says, okay, here I am. You want to see Jesus? Get into the word. Get into the word. You want to sense his presence? Get into the word. Jesus, many people come to church proclaiming and asking and calling out, Oh, Holy Spirit. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, God, my Father, please search me. And they leave here just reciting music and songs and reading bumper stickers and T-shirts. And, and that's, the, that's the theology that they live by. 
That's, the, that's all most people live by is but what's written on the back of a t-shirt, a song that they sing, and they think, okay, I'm, I'm ready for the week. Without even recognizing or realizing what is the theology behind that verse. You see, beloved, theology matters. Doctrine is important. You need to know the scriptures. Here, let me share something else with you while I'm here. In verse 33, you know, I'm taking way off here, man. In verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, those who were with them, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. At that very hour, it took them all afternoon to walk home. Yeah, I'm just wondering how fast they ran back to Jerusalem to see and to share with everybody that was in the upper room. This is what happened. Check this out. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And here's what he said. He said this. Man, you guys run fast. I barely kept up with you guys. No, he didn't say that. He did not say that. He said this. Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Why are you troubled? He says, why? Why are you troubled? Here's the point I'm trying to make there. You want to see Jesus show up? Share your experience about Jesus Christ. Share what you learned from the scriptures. These guys learned firsthand from the maestro, the maestro, the teacher, Rabboni. They learned firsthand from what the scriptures said. And they were able to see it. And they went and they told. And the moment, Jesus didn't show up until after they spoke it out. It's not that Jesus was slow. He was already there, amen? It's not that Jesus, you know, these guys ran faster than Jesus. Jesus was already there. He was waiting for the appropriate time. What's that appropriate time? When they spoke it. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And that's when Jesus stands there. Okay. Number one, read the scriptures. So when we talk about the scriptures that prophesy about Jesus Christ, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. And we'll go there. Now, I've used this verse a few times already, Isaiah 53. And more than likely, this is probably the one section that he probably focused on. In Isaiah 53, it is is known as Isaiah 53, but it really starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13. And not until about the 1600s that verses and chapters were added to the Bible. So when we say, when I say Isaiah 53, and you'll hear other people say Isaiah 53 as well, always know that we're talking about Isaiah 52, 13 to the end of 53. So in order to, you know, just to simplify things, this is what I mean when I say Isaiah 53. And in my Bible, up on the top, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. You see that? Okay, you might have it in your Bible as well. Now, this (coughs) this portion of Scripture is known as as, as the fifth gospel. This portion of scripture is is so uncannily accurate. This portion of scripture was written some 750 years before Jesus Christ was born. This portion of scripture details the crucifixion before crucifixions were even invented. Crucifixions weren't invented until about 500 years later. 
And in somewhere around two to 300 BC before Christ, they started to put people up on posts just so they can show people, don't mess with us. And people thought, hey, that's a good idea. And the Parthians took, took hold of it. But the Romans were the ones that perfected it to be this cruel, cruel execution. And before anybody had ever impaled anyone or hung anybody on a cross or on a stake or on a tree, Isaiah sees this. Now, you have to look at Isaiah as something prophetic. When you read this, keep in mind that Isaiah is looking way up in the future. Not today or not 2,000 years ago, but you know, not 750 years later. He's looking to the end of the return of Jesus Christ. And at the end of return of Jesus Christ, he's looking back to the cross. This might get a little confusing, but you'll see as the words come out and how they are, you know, he was, or he is, or he used to be, or he's going to be. And so when you look at Isaiah 53, you have to look at it in the context that God is giving him a very perfect, detailed outline of what Messiah is to be. Now get this. Most of the Jewish people, they saw Messiah. They knew Messiah was coming. They knew Messiah was going to establish his kingdom. He, they knew that he was going to redeem Israel. They thought the, the nation, the people, they, they were going to have their, their, their place to be able to meet and, and to do whatever they wanted without any oppression from Rome or any other place. And so Messiah is seen as this conquering hero, but they missed it. And it's right here. There, I'll, I'll share with you some reasons as to why it is that I think most people missed it. A lot of the Jewish people miss it as, as we go through this. But look at verse 13 of 52. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. What he's talking about here is the end time. He is exalted on high, and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and everyone comes to a recognition of who Jesus Christ is, Messiah is. And many were astonished at you. Now he's looking at you. Many were astonished at you. He's looking back. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. If you know anything about the Roman flogging, see, a lot of people think that Jesus Christ endured a lashing of 39, 40 minus one lashes. And that's when many people proclaim that, well, Jesus got 40 minus one lashings and he got 39 because they knew that at the, 39, at the 40th lash he would die. And what many people fail to, to realize is that that is the Jewish law. When they lash somebody, it was a long rod, a long stick, and they would lash them 39 times. They knew if they went over that, the person would possibly die. All they wanted to do was just to make him suffer for the crime that he committed. The flogging, on the other hand, was done by Romans. And the Romans, they used this flagellum that was a piece of wood about this long. And it had these strips of leather that were tied to it, about eight to ten pieces of leather. And every one of those leathers had some ball bearings, some metal, some bones, and sharp edges. The, the, the ball bearings or the round things, or the, the stones, were meant to tenderize the meat where the rest of the sharp shrapnel was designed to just rip the flesh off the prisoner's back. And if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, if you've seen the ugliness of it, Mel Gibson did a very good reenactment of what possibly could have happened. You see, we don't have pictures of the crucifixion or the flogging. All we know is that he was flogged. All we know is that he was pierced, his hands and his feet. Because to just to go into detail for us at this point, for them, people knew he was crucified? Really? 
Nobody asked, was he crucified on a tree, on a cross, on a, on a stick? Nobody, well, you know, nobody asked, was it 39 minus, 40 minus 1 lashes? They knew. And all this information that we have now of the crucifixion and the flogging, and everything that he went through, all the con- condemnation, all the torture that he went through. You see, he was forsaken. He was so marred, the Bible says. Isaiah is looking back now, and he says, you know, they beat him up so bad, you couldn't even tell if he was human or not. He was just this flesh hanging off these bones, blood everywhere. And they had plucked his beard, and they, they spit on him, and they hit him with sticks, and they tortured him. This is Messiah, the suffering servant. And as they, they went about torturing Jesus Christ, it, it, was, it was something of a, of a very cruel and ugly act. But Isaiah saw it. In verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings, and shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. What Isaiah did there in those three verses, he summarized what he's just about ready to tell us. Messiah, crucified, beat up, first of all, marred. And kings, when they see him, are going to say, uh, uh, they're not going to know what to say. Most kings have something to say, right? Most presidents, most rulers have something. These rulers are not going to have anything to say. They're going to recognize that this is the one that they killed. Verse 1 of 53. Who has believed what what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root Out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. This shoot that grew out of the ground, it was very well known that it was the the, the shoots that were coming out of most olive trees. Have you ever seen an olive tree or some fig trees? They have these little shoots that come out, and what they do is they suck the nutrients out of the plant, out of the whole tree. And those shoots are just, they're worthless. So most people, what they do is they cut those down. And this is how Messiah is supposed to be. He presented himself in such. He was nothing. To the, to the person, to the regular person. And he grew up before them like this young plant. Wasn't even cared for. Didn't even, nobody taught him. Nobody nurtured him. Nobody gave him anything. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. And he was despised and we esteemed them not. Reminds you of the crucifixion. People just, yeah, it's, there's your God. Might as well be a donkey. Might as well be just any other animal, another criminal. If he really is the Son of God, have him bring himself down from there. 750 years later, earlier, it is prophesied. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You know, if this guy was really God's child, he, God wouldn't do that. God must have really not liked him. See, that was the thought. It's kind of the thought of today also. If you do well, God loves you. If you don't do well, then God must be mad at you. Something's wrong in your life, and therefore you should confess. See, because if you don't have enough faith, then there's something wrong in your life. That's why you're not getting what you're getting. If you get what you get, it's because you had a lot of faith. But in today's culture, that's kind of the same way. You know, God has his favor upon those that love him. That's why we're doing so good. But Jesus is the exact opposite of what most 
Bible teachers teach. Verse 6. Oh, wait a minute. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Now let me ask you something here. So Jesus Christ endured this cruel cross, the flogging from the Roman soldiers, so that my knees can be healed, or so that my back be straightened out, or so that my headaches can go away. So Jesus Christ endured this so that I can be healed from my cold, from my asthma, from my COVID, from whatever the case may be. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. Well, praise God. You, you, saw, you see how ridiculous that sounds? He wasn't bruised to heal you of your infirmities. Your infirmity is going to come anyways. They will. And it's not because you don't have any faith. And it's not because God hates you. It's not because God does. Now, does God heal? Yes, I believe he does. But that's not why he went to the cross. He went to heal you from your sin. Well, what, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and everything that he has, but yet loses his soul? He healed you from the wickedness of sin that each one of us carry. Because without salvation, without this gospel message that was proclaimed throughout the Old Testament, and what the apostles came back to share, what Jesus Christ revealed to these men going to Emmaus, without that gospel... God has been in the business of sharing this everlasting gospel. You see, the gospel message that you have been bruised, that Jesus Christ is bruised just so I can be good, I, I, I don't know how people get that, but I guess you can when you take it out of context. When you take it out of context, yes, it sounds like, well, there it is, see? But when you understand that this is Isaiah talking about the suffering servant that is going to take place 750 years later, that even the Jewish people didn't see. One of the reasons people believe that the Jewish people didn't see that is because they took it out of context. In the Jewish synagogue, they would read a portion of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, uh, every, every week. They would read portions and portions and portions and portions. So it would probably take you know, months, years to go through the whole Old Testament, to read a portion, to read a portion, to read a portion. And from the portion, they would read something else from the Jewish writers. Historian. So that's how they would read the Old Testament. And somehow somebody discovered that that portion of scripture in the synagogues was taken out. Do you know what happens today when a Jewish person reads Isaiah 53 and they see that with the knowledge now, the armchair quarterback looking back on Monday night, looking at the, uh, at the play that just took place 2,000 years ago, they say, this, this is Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Philip was, uh, was preaching the gospel, people were getting saved. The Holy Spirit took him to an Ethiopian, and Ethiopian was reading this one particular scripture. And Philip went up to him and says, what are you reading? He says, this guy, who is this guy? That he was bruised for our transgressions. Who is this? You know, and what Philip did is he showed him who he was. And right there and then, the Ethiopian was baptized. And, and when, you, when you look at this portion of scripture, and you, you almost have to think, somebody must have been there to see this. He was. It was given to him by God. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This offering for guilt is the doctrine of atonement. He atoned. He paid for this offering. This offering that you people bring every, every year, every year. This lamb that you bring to the altar that we sacrifice for you cannot cure your sin. Your sin is still upon you. God was telling them, you bring it year in. It's supposed to be a picture of what is to take place. Jesus Christ fulfilled that. This gospel message, because his iniquities, we all like sheep have gone astray. All of us. None of us are righteous. Each one of us are sinners. And each one of us need this gospel message. Yet, he says in verse 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him. You know, that just, that just baffles me. It, in some verses, it'll say, in translations, it'll say, it pleased God to crush him. Because that was the only way. The way they did the lamb. They brought it to the altar. The, 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 the priests would stab it in the heart, slit its throat, and let it bleed out. Take the blood and throw it on the altar. Send it on home with the people. They would take the skin and they would burn it. And they would give a portion of it to the priests. They would take it home and they would eat it. That's the picture of the suffering servant. And that was the picture. Every year, they would do so. Whenever they sinned, they would bring in another atonement offering. They would bring in a sacrifice offering because by the, by the sacrifices of bull, blood, there's no other way for sin to get atoned for in the Old Testament sacrificial system. When you understand the Old Testament, you start to see how it all pans out. This is the portion of Scripture that more than likely the apostles used. They didn't have the Romans road. They didn't have uh, the four spiritual laws. They didn't have uh, all these other things. All they had was the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Verse 11, out of anguish, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is Jesus Christ. You see, the people back then, they read this. They didn't see who it was. It's a suffering servant. They recognized Isaiah as a suffering servant. And they recognized that this was going to happen. But like most of us, we focus on the good things of God. We focus on the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God. We focus on the things that, that please us, that, that makes us feel good. Those are the things that we focus on. And there are many pastors that are willing to just, yeah, you know, bring people in and we'll show you the good stuff. You know, we don't talk about sin. You know, we don't talk about salvation. We don't talk about, because people don't need to know that they're, they need to be saved. They just need to know that they need to be happy. 
But see, the gospel message includes the suffering servant. Very quickly, your outlines. The gospel message, number one. When Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul put it all together. Jesus lied it out for the people in the, Emmaus, in the, the, the men of Emmaus. He lined it out for them. And, and it's, he says there, number one, the first thing that we need to recognize is God is holy. That's who he is. Who is God? He's holy. He's pure. He's separate. He's, Exodus 15 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? In 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, and there is no rock like our God. And Isaiah 6, 3 says, and, ho- and I heard them saying one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He's holy, and as such, He's God. And as God, He, creates, he created the planet and He makes the rules. I, I, you know what? I don't have to like him and I don't have to agree with him. I just know he does. I like, I like the fact that I'm doing the best I can to live up to them, to agree with them. But the fact that God is holy, that is the one thing that I think we, 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 don't, we don't pull out enough. We don't give enough information on the holiness of God. And the second thing is that man is sinful. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous. No, not one. Not me, not you, not the president, not the pope. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Beloved, our hearts are so deceitful and wicked. They lie to us. And and if we understood what Jesus Christ did for us and how it was laid out for us, because once we crossed into this planet, onto this planet, we were born in what the Bible calls sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you followed the ways of this world. And, and because we're sinful, God is holy. Number three, the law of God requires justice. The law of God requires justice. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. you got to remember that the writer to the Hebrews is talking to the Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people understood that there was, everything had to be redeemed by blood. Either turtle doves, either uh, you know, a goat, a lamb, uh, a ram. Something, something had to be brought to be able to redeem the sin, the cleansiness. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. This is why Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I don't know if many people even know this verse, but the Lord tests the righteous people. Did you know? But his soul, God's soul, he hates the wicked. Say that to somebody that says, oh, God is love. He loves me. He knows I'm a work in progress. You know, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. You know, if you're a sinner, the Bible says he hates you. You're an object of his wrath. You are going to experience the wrath of God. Does he forgive? Yeah, he does. 
But if you're still in sin, if you continue in sin, if you don't want anything to do with God, yeah, guess what? You are this person that God says, I hate the wicked and the one who loves violence. You cannot be a child of God who loves wickedness and who loves violence. You cannot be a child of God standing in the right on one side of the aisle. First John, the, the, the gospel of the epistles of John, he says, you know, the love of the world is hatred toward God. Love of God is hatred toward the world. You're either on one side or the other. This is why Jesus tells the people, uh, the, the churches in, F, in, in Revelation, you know, I would rather you be hot or cold, but you're trying to walk lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out. Number four, my biggest problem. My biggest problem is this. For the wages of sin is death. That's my biggest problem. My biggest problem is that I am a sinner. That I have sinned. And that I've got to be reminded that I'm a sinner. And that I, I have sinned. And the gospel message is there to show me my sin. And my gospel, the gospel message is there to say that you are a sinner. And you have sinned against a holy and pleasing and pure God. That he is a, a righteous God. And he requires justice. He's just not going to say, ah, eh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Come on in. As some people might think. Some people just don't get into heaven just because they think they are. Some people think that God is going to raise, lower down the expectations. He's going to lower the bar and I'm going to try to just, just far enough so I can just jump right over. And that's, and that's how I'm going to get in. God's standard is perfection. And he made it that way so that nobody can hit it. And the Pharisees thought they could hit it. And the righteous thought that they could hit it. My biggest problem is that I'm a sinner, but the wages of sin is death. However, that big word, but, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Galatians 3.10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You can't work your way up to heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't follow the law enough to get to heaven. The law is there to show you that you can't do it. Yet people have tried. You, you know, if, if, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Jesus said this, if you fail at one, you failed at all of them. If you failed at one. Because we have all sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. And James even says this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of them all. That's just what happens. So here's the good news. The good news is, as I said earlier, that for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, as far as what it was that the Bible had already talked about, we, we saw one section, Psalm 22 is another one, that talks about His piercing. You have a lot of them in Ezekiel and in uh, Moses talked about the Messiah that is going to come from among the brothers. There are many uh, inferences as to Messiah, who he's going to be. The problem was that the people, well, the Jewish, the Pharisees, the rulers didn't see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They refused to. As a matter of fact, they said, this man is gaining su such notoriety that, that they're going to start following him and the Romans are going to take away our power. we got to do something about this. And the chief priest at that time says, you know what? It would be best if one man dies instead of all of us. 
without even realizing what he said. He just wanted to get Jesus Christ out of the way so that they wouldn't get in trouble. But that was prophetic. It's better if one man dies than all of us be in trouble. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. So the good news is that he died on the cross for me. He bore, look at 1 Peter 2.24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You know, it's interesting that every one of the apostles, they quote out of Isaiah 53. They use Isaiah 53 as a launching point. This is where, this is where he's at. This is what, what he's done. He died on the cross. Not to make my back better, not to make my knees better, but to save me from my sin, to heal me from my sin. And it was the will of the Lord to crush him, as we read earlier. What's my response? My response should be to repent. You know, from the very beginning, when Jesus Christ started his ministry in Mark chapter 1, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist, Matthew 3, says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In Matthew 4, 17, he says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 15, 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In Luke 16, verse 30 through 31, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Luke 24, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witness. Repent and be baptized. Peter told the people in Jerusalem, repent therefore and turn back to God so that he may blot out your sins. Repent, repent, repent is synonymous with saving faith. See, a lot of people say, well, I, I did that, and I, I repented. I, you know, I was probably about 12 or 13 years old, and I repented. I did it once. Repentance is not something that you just do once. Repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance, genuine repentance, changes your action, changes your mind, changes your will, changes your heart. Repentance, some people have mentioned it, that it's the Greek word metanoia, to change the way you think. See, some people look at, well, you know, I changed the, I changed the way I think about Jesus. You know, I, I, I see him different now. Yeah, I see that. I see him different. Repentance is a lifestyle. See, unless there's genuine repentance in your life that changes who you are. See, repentance comes with a changed lifestyle. It's evident for people that are on drugs and alcohol and bikers or whatever the case may be. They used to be one way. Now they're a different person. It's very evident. But it's hard for the person that thinks they're morally right, that thinks that they're okay, that everything is fine. So that's why Jesus, right, right here, he says, for those that need repentance, those that don't need it, you can't repent. The gospel message points to your sin, causes you to repent and live a different life. The gospel message 
is not just something that we proclaim. It's something that we live. The gospel message I need every day. I need to be reminded of what it was that Jesus Christ did for me. The gospel message is the power of salvation, Paul said, to first the Jew and then the Greek. The gospel message is the one message that the world needs to hear today. Let me ask you to stand. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gave this parable of two men that were in the temple. One was a Pharisee. And he proclaimed, thank you, Lord, for making me a Jew. Thank God I'm not like that guy, a tax collector. You know, I tithe, I give, and I'm good. I'm a good standing Jew. Praise you, Lord. And the tax collector was on the side, on his knees, pounding his chest. He says, God, have mercy on me. Jesus said to the crowd, which one of the two left there justified? And everybody says, well, definitely the, the sinner, because he recognized his sin. If you recognize your sin right now, the one thing that you need to do is to proclaim, do like that tax collector, God, have mercy upon me. The Holy Spirit will direct you and lead you to that change. That change, dear God, is not a change that I can do on my own. Many times prior to being, to coming in contact with your Holy Spirit, I tried to change. I took classes, I went to courses, I did all kinds of things. I made resolutions and promises, but God, you know that none of those worked. And it wasn't until I came face to face with who I am, but most importantly, with who you are. And I came face to face knowing that I was in trouble. My biggest problem was me. I thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. For those that have proclaimed who you are. That today is the day of salvation for everyone. That you give your saving grace to those who can cry out and say, Father, forgive me. Have mercy upon me, for I am a sinner. And Lord, I pray that the life that changes, the, the being born again, regenerated, being born, brought back new, all things have made, been made new. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come. And we become new creations, not by what we try to do, but by what we can do through the Holy Spirit, what you do through us. Lord, this gospel message is one of power, of encouragement to those who are saved. And it is the stench of death to those that are not. And I pray that whoever it is that's hearing this message today will turn to you and understand that you are Lord, that we need to submit to you. We thank you, Father, for this, this time that we have as you lead us and dismiss us. I pray for those that are celebrating this weekend with friends and family. You bring them back safely, that they enjoy this weekend together, that we never forget those that have gone on before us, but most importantly, Golgotha, the cross. Keep our eyes focused on that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen and amen. If you'd like to come up for a word of prayer, I'd like to pray with you this, this afternoon. I'll be up here for a moment. Amen? All right. 
we are dismissed. Mm-hmm.